News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Katie Honan here with Dr. Christina Greer and Harry Siegel. The horrific national news in Texas aside, it's been another wild week in New York, starting with the second terrifying train shooting in the last two months. Andrew Abdullah was arrested days after he allegedly shot and killed Daniel Enriquez at random as their Q train went over the Manhattan Bridge Sunday and then escaped after the train reached Canal Street. In Brooklyn, Hercules Reed, the candidate Mayor Eric Adams endorsed over the Democratic nominee and former Jumani Williams staffers Monique Chandler Waterman, was easily defeated in a special state assembly election this week for the district covering East Flatbush in what amounted to a win for the public advocate and gubernatorial candidate in a proxy fight against the mayor. And a federal judge heeded for now, Mayor Adams is called not to appoint a receiver for the city's disastrous jails while demanding more specifics from the city about their plans to turn things around and keeping the option of a deferral takeover on the table. So back to elections, let's welcome back to the pod, political strategist and venture capitalist Bradley Tusk, who ran Mike Bloomberg's 2009 campaign and whose shop ran Andrew Yang's mayoral campaign last year. He's here to help break down a truly wild game of congressional musical chairs across New York and also tell us about PNT Knitwear, his new bookstore and podcast space opening soon on the Lower East Side. So that store, by the way, is now at the south end of Carolyn Maloney's 12th congressional district, anchored by the Upper East Side. But as of next year, that district's pretty much gone, and uh, the store will be part of the wide-open 10th district that could end up being represented by, among others, former Park Slope councilman Bill de Blasio. Whatever happened to that guy? Current Chinatown Assembly member Yuli Nia, and Congressman Mondaire Jones of Westchester County who's taken his petitions and his formidable campaign war chest way south after DCC chair Sean Patrick Maloney, no relation to Carolyn, decided to primary Jones. That, in turn, led Alessandra Biagi, who'd already given up her safe seat in the state Senate to try and win the congressional seat that Tom Swasey gave up to run for governor, only for Biagi to find herself living way outside of that district and with little shot of winning it, in the new maps drawn up by a special master after the ones Democrats tried to draw for themselves were thrown out by the courts to shift plans and run against Maloney. Now, Biagi, as it happens, doesn't live in that district either, but she'll nonetheless be the standard bearer for progressives furious at Maloney, who does live in it, for deciding to primary a black progressive incumbent to increase his own odds of staying in power. So it all seems like a mess for politics in New York, albeit one that's giving some actual choices to voters for a change, at least if they can keep track of what district they're in and which primaries are in June and which ones are in August. And it's certainly a mess for Democrats nationally who are depending on New York maps drawn by and favoring Democrats to help give the party a chance to maintain control of Congress as Republicans in states like Florida are drawing maps that benefit their party. And the judges there, unlike the ones here, are allowing. So Bradley, welcome and Tell us first about PNT Knitwear, the name, and where and what it'll be, and when people can get there, and then help us make sense of what's happening with these new maps, starting with the wild and wide open 10th Congressional District, where just about everyone in New York seems to be running, including your old friend, Bill de Blasio. Sure, and, and 
thank, thanks for giving me the chance to talk about this. So uh, I think the genesis was um, a couple of years ago, uh, Howard Wolfson, who listeners of this podcast probably know, and I created something called the Gotham Book Prize. And the reason we did it was it fell to us during COVID that one of the great risks New York City faced is that the mystique that makes the city so special, the rest of the world sees. So our New York are, is physical. The parks, the playgrounds, the streets, the schools. But for the rest of the world, they know New York too, but it's books, movies, podcasts, songs, TV shows. And our view was for as long as that mystique exists, talented people from all over the country and all over the world will want to come to New York. And as long as we have that kind of talent, the city will be okay. So that's kind of how we, we put that together. Christina graciously agreed to be on the jury. Um, and we started working on it. And it was fun. I mean, I assume Christina would say that too. And so I was enjoying all of it and said, hey, what else can I do with this? And I, you know, had always thought one day it'd be fun to own a bookstore, but I figured it'd be one of those like when I retire type projects. And then I kind of realized like, look, I can lose money on a bookstore now. I can lose money on a bookstore in 25 years. It doesn't really make a difference, right? So uh, why not at a time when the city, you know, is, is losing a lot of jobs, we're still down, as I understand, about 450,000 jobs since COVID, you know, why not create some? I mean, look, this is not a massive employment project, but we'll have about 20 people between full-time and hourly. Um, and we are, you know, I think the only bookstore that I'm aware of that is, gives full benefits to every single person, both hourly and full-time with no co-pays on their own. So basically the same healthcare you get at Touch Ventures or Touch Strategies or Touch Philanthropies, you get even if you're an hourly worker at, uh, at P&T Netware. And then there's a few other things we're also doing to try to distinguish it a bit. One is a, a podcast studio that is uh, open and available for anyone to use for free. So if you're listening to this and, and you're looking for a podcast studio, please come use ours. We'd love to have you. Uh, an event space for the community to use. We have amphitheater seating for around 80 people, so we can uh, let them use it pretty much whenever they need to. Um, the cafe is mainly staffed by people who are formerly incarcerated. Um, we, we're happy to have that opportunity. Um, and then the last piece, I guess, is, is the name, because obviously it's, it's not a traditional name for a bookstore. Uh, when my family came to this country in the 1950s, uh, there weren't a lot of jobs for uneducated Jews. You know, they didn't have education. They just made it through, barely survived the war. Um, but the garment business was always something that that you know you could do, right? And so when my grandfather came here, he and a guy that he was in the refugee camps with, I mean Mike Puglo, uh, opened a tiny like three or four hundred square foot sweater store on Allen Street uh, called PNT Knitwear. And when I um, when I signed the lease for our space at 180 Orchard, I said to my dad, like, where was that other store? Isn't it near there? And he's like, yeah, it's like literally right around the corner. And I thought that's kind of a cool name. And when he said, well, you can't call a bookstore P&T Knitwear, that settled it. That it was definitely calling it that. And so, <laughs> um, so that's, you know, so that's been it. So we're, we're, we're open uh, starting Saturday and, and would love to have people come by and, and, you know, buy a book or have a coffee or record a podcast or, or whatever you like. So Bradley, one, thanks again for having us. And two, thank you for asking me to, to be on the jury for the Gotham Book Prize, which is such a great resource for New Yorkers. Um, especially journalists and authors. But that story about PNT Knitwear and how the bookstore got his name is, I mean, it just warms my heart. It makes me really want to go and kind of feel the spirit of your grandfather. And so that was going to be my question. Why the Lower East Side? Um, because there's so many different places. Unfortunately, in, in this city, so many bookstores are closing. And as an academic, yeah. you know, I'm all about uh, bookstores yeah. opening, especially independently owned bookstores. Um, so that location is fantastic. Can you give us the specific location? Yeah. And you said it opens on Saturday. And that's 
open to the public? Open to the public. So 180 Orchard Street. And, you know, we basically looked for spaces either in the East Village or Lower East Side um, because there there is not a, a, a great bookstore that I'm aware of in those communities. So it felt like there was really a need for one, right? So that's why we chose it. Um, and yeah, between Houston and Stanton, uh, opens on Saturday and, uh, you know, come one, come all, please. My ancestral homeland, my, my grandfather lived at, I think 110 Orchard street, but I don't think oh, that wow. address exists anymore. It's something else. That's what. Oh, I'll, I'll check it out next time I'm on the block. But it's <laughs> a, uh, you know, and look, my, my hope is that we're building something that can become kind of iconic, right? That like, when you go to the Lower East Side, you stop by the Tenor Museum, you stop by Castle, you stop by Economy Candy, hopefully PT Network is kind of another thing on people's circuit. Um, so that's, you know, that's what we're going for. But I will, I will check for 110 Orchard uh, and let you know the next time I'm over there. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I wouldn't be a good board member and trustee of the Tenement Museum if I didn't mention I am on the board of the Tenement Museum, which is at yep. 103 Orchard. So yep. I, I hope that, you know, you will come to the museum and not be a stranger. And Annie Pollan, who's the executive director, and I can kind of take you around and we can sort of continue the spirit of your grandpa. I, I love stories like this. Yeah, I love that. So an interesting story. So my mother's father grew up, was born in this country, grew up on the Lower East Side, and, you know, really, really poor. And then eventually he was a baker and they ended up at Sheepshead Bay. And probably 20 years ago, while he was still alive, we took him to the Tenement Museum thinking, like, he'll find this so interesting. He was furious with us. It was We had not he's like, why would you bring me here? I escaped from this. You know, how could you put this back in my, it was, we were shocked. Like that was wow. the last thing we anticipated. So it's interesting that people who actually live that, you know, uh, it's, if some of them, I guess are, are still, uh, may, may not want to revisit it. So this is a perfect segue. Um, now that we're comfortably ensconced in 180 Orchard Street, um, and everyone's going to come and see the bookstore and podcast space. And I'm really curious about this amphitheater space, Katie. We should like host something. We got to figure that out. I would love to. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Like just, just, Queens, just let us know. Queens Girl yeah. Brigade. Um, yeah. Okay. So, Bradley, let's shift gears just a little bit and talk about New York 10. This is like the Wild Wild West district. Uh, it's it's basically everyone and their grandmother has decided to run. But our dear friend, former mayor, uh, Bill de Blasio, has decided that he's going to run. State Assembly member Yulin's going to run. Mondaire uh, um, Jones is Congressman Mondaire yep. Jones going to run. So we've got two sitting uh, officials, a former New York City mayor, and we know there are going to be some other folks who know oh, how to raise sure. money. Um, so there are yeah. going to be some fascinating, at least on my end, some fascinating racial and gender dynamics. Um, there, there, there are a lot of shades of blue in New York. So there's some wide spectrums of what progressive uh, New Yorkers look like. And this is going to be a district that's going to cover lower Manhattan and also Brooklyn. Uh, right. And so there are going to be some interesting conversations about both boroughs. What are you feeling about this race and, yeah. and who have you got your eye on? And a couple of things. So, so one, in terms of the race itself, um, in a macro analysis way, look, turnout's going to be really low. Turnout is generally not particularly high. And now we're doing it on a date that we've never had an election before at a time where at least the Brownstone, Brooklyn, and parts of the Manhattan, Manhattan parts of that district, people very well may be away on vacation. Uh, that tends to be the time where a lot of people take off. So. Uh, one is you have to assume that there just aren't that many votes cast. Then, as you said, it's going to be a multi-candidate field, right? So you listed three. Uh, there's another person I've talked to, a kind of a, a wealthy person who, who wants to run. Uh, I saw that there was someone else from Sunset Park running. It'll end up being seven or eight by the time it's all done. So then the question is, 
where are there reliable blocks to get votes from? And, you know, if, if there are seven or eight candidates, because you just need a plurality to win, you know, could someone win with 17%, right? And if so, what does that mean? So in terms of the, the endorsements and the blocks, to me, the three key ones in that district would be one, Borough Park, the, the Bubbugs, because they do mainly vote as, as a block. Um, two, to the extent that you could get uh, Asian leaders in Sunset Park to really come behind you, that also has a better shot. Although since it's going to be multiple Asian candidates, that, that may make that harder. Um, and then this is a district where the Times endorsement does matter, right? There are some districts where it's, it's irrelevant, um, but that's not the case here. And so the question is, if you just take the three that we're talking about, the Blasio, Yungli, and Mondaire, um, I would imagine that Mondaire is probably the best positioned um, to get the Times endorsement. I can't imagine they would want to give it to Blasio. So that, I think, gives him an advantage. He also has $3 million already in the bank from money he had raised for the, you know what he expected to be his reelection. Um, and I'll also just say, I, I'm a big fan of his. So um, out of my foundation, Tusk Philanthropies, one of the things we work on is childhood hunger. So we fund and run bills in states all over the country to mandate programs like universal school meals or breakfast after the bell and stuff like that. Um, when they were going to do the Build Back Better bill in Washington, I was trying to get another $10 billion included for school meals. Um, and Mondaire really helped me a ton with that. Uh, you know, wrote a letter to all of his colleagues, got people to sign on to it. You know, and there was no political benefit for it. We didn't announce it publicly. You know, he wasn't motivated by trying to get the attention that politicians normally want. He was just trying to do a genuinely really good thing. And so I'm, I'm a big fan of his. And then I think, as uh, some of your political experts might know, I'm not a big fan of Bill de Blasio. <laughs> so um, <laughs> the choice is pretty clear for me in that race. So really quickly, though, Bradley, you know, I want to remind our listeners that the election is August 23rd. Uh, that's when they'll be voting for, for Congress. But uh, we are going to the polls June 28th to vote for governor and lieutenant governor and some other races. So... When it comes to this District 10 with Mondaire Jones, I know by law you don't have to live in the district to run for Congress. Right. But, you know, he's traveling pretty far south yeah, um, yep, from Westchester area all the way down to lower Manhattan and Brooklyn. Does the fact that he doesn't live in the district, and yes, he knows how to raise money, but so do a lot yeah. of people in that race, right? You know, yep, I, I've yep. heard, you know, possibly Don Smalls might jump in. Yep, There's Carolina exactly. Rivera, uh, who yep. also knows how to raise money. Bill de Blasio, he does know how to raise money. He doesn't like to work. Well, I don't know if money. he does when he doesn't have kind of patronage jobs and government contracts to give out <laughs> True. Return. Well, we shall see, right? I mean, I, I don't turn yeah. my back on a... <laughs> On a white man who knows how to raise money in the past, so we shall yeah, see. For, for um, sure, he, we, look politically, he's been underestimated in his whole career. His entire wow. career. Substantively, he's a disaster. Politically, you can't say that he hasn't been successful. He's right? a shark, right? You know, he plays the yeah. all shucks, but he knows how to swim in those waters. So, how much of a factor do you think some of these candidates will make of the fact that Mondaire Jones not only doesn't live in the district, but doesn't even live in a neighboring district? Yeah, I mean, I think I think they will because I think Mondaire may be the front runner, and they're going to have to attack him however they can. But I, I would say, in terms of mitigating, that's when I remember, you know, when you said Mondaire, like he called me. I don't know, whenever the day before he, he announced this, and he's like, "I'm going to run in the tenth. I'm like, "Really?" You know, I was sort of shocked. I'm like, "No, you mean like the seventeenth or something, right?" right? And he's like, "No, the tenth." I'm like, "Ah, okay." Um, look. New York does have a history of kind of carpet-bagging politicians being successful. Uh, Bobby Kennedy, Hillary Clinton, um, you know, even, uh, you know, Mike Bloomberg was from Boston originally, right? So there's, there's, the city seems to not have as provincial of a mentality as other places would about this, in some ways because we assume 
It's New York. Of course, everybody wants to be here. Who wouldn't want to be here? So therefore, the fact that they're coming in, I think, matters less to us than it might, you know, somewhere else. And the other thing is, because the maps are so crazy, um, I think you got to give everyone at least a little bit of latitude in saying, you know, uh, this is going to be different than how we normally do it. So I I don't think it's an argument that really sticks. Um, And look, if you think about those big voting blocks that we talked about, Times certainly won't care about that, right? They're going to want the most, they're going to want to endorse a person of color who's progressive, right? And I think Mondaire is, is that person. Um, the Bubbubs certainly don't care. All they care about is someone who's good on their issues, right? <laughs> you could be from anywhere. It's totally irrelevant to those guys. And I think probably the same thing in, in Sunset Park. So yeah, I don't I don't think it's it's a major uh, shortfall for Mondaire. Not to bring up your friend Bill de Blasio again, our former mayor, but um, the thing that also I, I think of when, when he's announced officially that he's running, I know this was, I guess, the third race that he was thinking about running in. My colleagues at the city, uh, Greg Smith and Yoav Gonan, reminded us of the hundreds of thousands of dollars that Bill de Blasio owes to taxpayers, a law firm, yeah. and political consultants. Um, do you think, uh, I guess you mentioned it briefly, but how he, he can raise money, do you think he can without the, the you know, extra, I'm going to be mayor and I can help you or governor? And, and how much of a, you know, I guess that is something that can be brought up by by competitors as well. That's just the hundreds of thousands of dollars you already own. So why yeah. are you giving him? Look, he's, I think, $2.3 million in debt. Um, he's somehow living in a suite at a nice hotel in downtown Brooklyn. Though no one quite knows how he's paying for that. Other than that, the owner of the hotel has received some government benefits over the years uh, when de Blasio was mayor. So look, when he ran for president, he did not raise very much money at all. Yeah. The only kind of institutional support money he got that I recall was um, the hotel trades, right? Yeah. So Peter and, and those guys uh, endorsed uh, endorsed him. So maybe there are some unions that, as sort of part of a longer term relationship, uh, do support him and give him some money. But yeah, I think your average, you know, the the landlords, the taxi medallion owners, like all the people who really do it for pay to play purposes. Um, you know, there's not that much he can do to help them in Congress. Yeah. So if you read that story in the city, Bill de Blasio has some unfinished business before he runs for Congress. It gets into a lot of this. Uh, The people who supported him uh, for these various, very complicated runs and political committees, very coincidentally, pretty much all of whom had business before New York City. Yes. Amazing how that works. Yeah. That's funny. Funny. If, if back to Mondaire Jones for a minute, if, if I take a step back here, right? So Sean Patrick Maloney is the head of the DCC. His yep. job is to help Democrats win. And he, uh, you know, we have these new maps. His district gets a lot tougher for him. Um, he tells Mondaire, hey, I'm going to run in your district, surprise, uh, which, which yeah. Maloney lives in. Uh, but about 70% yep. of the constituents in the new district are presently represented by Jones on, on this map. Yep. And and now he's going all the way south to this rare open seat that's attracting all of this attention. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Alessandro Biagi, as I mentioned earlier, is going to be running against uh, Maloney. Uh, you have unrelated Carolyn Maloney and Gerald Nadler on the uh, Upper East and Upper West sides. And this just seems like an extinction level event in some ways, as a time story put it, and a disaster for Democrats after they tried to uh, draw their own maps and the court here right. rejected them. 
Um, it, it, in your view, is this a, is this a good and healthy thing? Is this a positive for New York I, I voters think, and, and yes. the national perspective as well? Where, where in Florida, right. for instance, the Republicans drew very favorable maps. Their judges allowed it. And now it's a yeah. big advantage when you're just thinking about for who's going to control Congress. Yeah, a few things. So one is, look, I'm actually an independent. Um, I find both parties to be wildly corrupt in an app. So, um, you know, even though my giving sorts of line of most exclusively Democrat, and I guess since 2016, I've only voted for Democrats because Trump made the Republican Party just too unpalatable for me to support anyone in it, even a, even a moderate. Overall, I don't I don't see myself as particularly partisan. So I think it's great because I think that uh, it shakes things up. It, there are younger people now who are running in some of these different districts, obviously not in the 12th, but overall, I think it gets new candidates uh, into the race. For example, there's a woman, Jamie Cheney, who's up in Dutchess County, who I was uh, helping a little bit supporting, and she was running for state Senate, and now she's running for the Delgado, what was the Delgado seat uh, for Congress, right? I think that's great. Um, so I, I do think that this is good for the system. And I also look, there's that phrase in politics, which sort of gets said on this podcast a lot, which is pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. You know, if this, if Albany had been 15, 20% less greedy on the maps, they probably would have been totally fine. And none of this would be happening. Right. And they just took it so egregiously far that they put themselves in a position to have that, you know, uh, the, the maps thrown out. So, um, it's it's a good lesson, hopefully, that people will learn in the future. And look, uh, hopefully one day we're in a world where politicians don't have the power at all to draw the maps, right? And we can do this totally independently, which would ideally get us fairer districts and more competitive general elections. If, if we could, speaking of elections, and I was thinking about this recently, how a year ago, if we can transport ourselves back in time to 2021 and where we were as a city a year ago, it was the mayoral election. Um yeah. And I wanted you, Bradley, if you wanted to take a look back, I know you were obviously involved in Andrew Yang's campaign. Yeah. You were crucial to it and, and getting getting him to run. Um, and then I know a lot of the controversies around Yang, at least, were also, I guess, tied back to you. And I don't know if you wanted to revisit your comment to Ben Smith about him as an empty vessel and any other kind of you want to say what messaging or other ideas you think our current mayor, Eric Adams, may have picked up in that campaign. And anything else you want to reflect when it came to yeah, Andrew yeah, sure. Yang? So yeah, a few things. So one is, look, I, I supported Andrew for three specific reasons. The first is, um, to me, the most important thing the mayor does, at least initially, is appoint the team. And Mike Bloomberg, I would say that his success as mayor, and I know we can debate particular issues, but overall, his success as mayor is not because Mike thought of all these great ideas. He didn't think of 311 or the highlighters like that. He just hired incredibly competent people who had both come up with ideas, were encouraged to come up with ideas, um, and they were also told to hire people the same way. So over a period of 12 years, a couple of thousand people who were really talented showed up across the agencies and throughout City Hall, and that led to pretty good results. So that the first thing was, I felt like we needed a mayor who would try to replicate that, and I felt like Andrew, um, both because he has kind of a national reputation, he'd be good at kind of recruiting and, and attracting talent. Um, and at the same time, because he's not tied to anything politically in, in New York, he wouldn't know anybody anything either, right? So it would just be a very easy way to come in there, as opposed to the other candidates have, you know, their people, right? With Adams, I yeah. think we've seen kind of a mix of some really, really good appointments and some head scratchers, right? Um, so, you know, I, I, I head scratching or pearl clutching. <laughs> um, being nice. Uh, I, I have overall, I, I, I think Eric's doing doing okay, so I'm I'm going to be nice here. Um, that's number one. Number two is. 
Um, I uh, the other thing at my foundation we do is mobile voting. So we're funding and running the campaign to make it possible for people to vote in elections on their phones. We've done it in seven different states so far. We're now building our own mobile voting technology. Um, Yang is very supportive of that, right? And so to have a New York City mayor championing my idea, and I am the sole funder of this effort in the U.S. right now, um, seemed pretty pretty beneficial. Um, and the third is, you know, let's like mention I'm an independent. I support independent politics. I support political reform. And Yang's a reformer. So those are all the reasons why I chose to support him. And, and I think the question is, where was my strategy and analysis wrong? Because obviously it was wrong because we didn't win, right? Um, and I think it's that the zeitgeist of the city and the campaign turned heavily halfway, right? So um, the first, let's call it December, January, February, was still really all about COVID and COVID recovery, right? It was still on everyone's top of everyone's minds, number one issue. Once the vaccine started getting administered and people all of a sudden could get to their shots, it, it went from being the thing you worried about all day to something you kind of didn't really worry about afterwards. Um, and at the same time, violence and crime really shot up right around that same period. Um, and so as a result, the zeitgeist switched from COVID recovery to crime. And that meant Yang being kind of a good candidate in COVID recovery was certainly not a good candidate in crime. Not that he had anything wrong with it, but he had no expertise in it at all, whereas Eric Adams had been a cop for 22 years. So I, I think that's, you know, not foreseeing that uh, was one mistake that I made. Uh, another one is, I think I diminished the institutional powers more than I should have, right? Um, mm. I, I like to believe that endorsements don't really matter at all. Uh, like, for example, so much time in campaigns is spent, like, trying to get this assembly member and this state senator. Like, voters don't even know who their assembly member is, right? Like, yeah, I think if you were a Democrat and Barack Obama endorses you, that's really helpful. If you're a Republican in certain places and Donald Trump endorses you, that's really helpful. I don't think much else matters. And I kind of applied that logic of, kind of moving away from institutional politics more broadly to the strategy for the campaign itself. And I think what I underestimated was the Times, who both, you know, viciously went after Yang every chance they got in their articles, and, and me also, actually, um, and then, you know, w went hard against them in their editorials, too. And that that mattered more. And look, their endorsement, uh, you know, uh, of, of Garcia helped her almost win, right? So obviously, it was really pivotal. You know, I, I had this thesis. Harry, you and I talked about this about a year ago, if you remember, where in some ways I was trying to draw a parallel between the rise of cryptocurrency and the decline of political power by institutions in elections, um, in that if you think about crypto, and I'm, I don't know where you guys stand on crypto, but to me, it's basically a reflection of the fact that since the Vietnam War, trust in every institution of this country has plummeted, right? Whether it's government, media, higher ed, the church, Wall Street, all of it. And so ideologically, in many ways, crypto are people saying, you know what, I don't trust my central government. I don't trust the Federal Reserve or whatever it is for their relevant country. I would rather throw in with people who are like minded, um, even though even into the sort of totally conceptual idea. And in the same way that crypto was really taking off, especially during COVID, um, I, I apply that institutional mindset to elections as well. And I think I, I clearly took it too far. Yeah, I, I would say really quickly, like that's we'll have to have you on for much longer conversation about that because I think that there's a class element to that understanding in theory yeah. that might work for a certain class, but I don't know yeah. if we are talking about really working people. You know, and I've well, said this except, clearly. Christina, crypto is far more popular among people of color than than, than realized. It is it is 
if you look at the numbers, the customer base is pretty diverse. Right. But I'm talking about not just black people. I'm talking about poor people, which that's not yeah. always black people. Right. Sure. So like yeah. poor people who don't necessarily have the the luxury to sort of think outside of institutions and how institutions can sort of help them. I mean, listen, yeah. I've been very clear in this podcast. I think Andrew Yang is a danger and a menace to society. And I would like I nothing it. more yeah. than to <laughs> go away forever. Um, yeah. But, you I know, as we as we think about sort of the city and the moment we're in, you know, what what advice would you give, say, Eric Adams? Thinking about your role in trying to, you know, help Andrew Yang get to where yeah, he is. Thinking I, about your I, role with Michael Bloomberg, who did a sure. lot of great things for the city, and then some other things that we have some thoughts on. Correct. And just as, noting as, there that, that that Adams has been a big crypto booster in an interesting yeah. way, much yeah. more so since coming office than than he was on the campaign trip. Yeah, yeah, and, and I have you know I have heard the city hall, so I have given you know unsolicited advice, which they at least politely thank me for. Whether or not they <laughs> care, I don't know. Um, so I, I would say a few things. One is, and this is obvious, but crime is one of those things where the perception shapes the reality more than almost anything else I can think of, right? Because there's the actual, are you unsafe? I mean, the reality is you, yeah. the odds of you getting attacked on the subway are still infinitesimally low, right? But it feels unsafe to people because crazy things have been happening. And as a result, that changes mass transit usage. It train, changes people's attitudes and want to go back to the office. And a lot of other things. So the first thing is he's got to get his arms around this because it, it not only is a substantive problem, but it swallows up everything else. It, it swallows up the economy. It swallows up, you know, schools, everything else. So so that's number one. And he knows this, but but clearly, you know, he has to be as aggressive as possible. And look, the, to me, the, the best qualification Eric had for mayor is he's probably the only person who could really speak to the dual experiences of, of the candidates of being a person of color, being discriminated against, being racially profiled, and at the same time, being a police officer and knowing what that job is like. So I always felt like if somebody could find the balance here, it was at, it would be Eric. So uh, hopefully he, he can and will. Um, I'll also just say that we now have the chance to really bring the, the tech community back in New York. So, you know, crypto... The city has no regulation over crypto either issues at all. But um, why not try to make New York City the home of crypto jobs, right? The, the, there are real jobs at exchanges and mining and data facilities, all this other stuff. They have to be somewhere. Why not try to get them here? So I think Eric's a, a focus on that. It's been good. And look, broadly speaking, Mike Bloomberg spent 12 years trying to build a tech sector in New York City because, A, he is a tech entrepreneur. And B, you know, he looked at the economy and said, we're so reliant on finance and tourism, you know, we've got to diversify the economy a little bit. So he spent 12 years culminating in the uh, Cornell Technion campus on, on Roosevelt Island. The blog just spent the next eight years trying to drive tech out, right? He just was dismissive of it, went after companies as much as he could. And even more than just what you guys saw, like with Uber or Airbnb or whatever it is, just no one in tech could get their calls returned from the city. No one... You know, people say, I want to create jobs here that pay well, and they just couldn't get any cooperation on consensus, which is a really big uh, blockchain event that was always here and tens of thousands of people show up. They had to move it to Austin because the, the guy who runs it said, I, City Hall would not work with me in any way, shape or form to make this happen. So, um, so we had kind of eight really bad years. We're back now to having a, a mayor that is tech friendly. He's not a tech entrepreneur like Mike. Um, but I think he really gets it and believes in it. And so I'm just seeing from my own community, my day job now as a venture capitalist, that people here in tech feel pretty good. I think that they feel validated. They feel like they've got now a friend at City Hall. Um, and so I know that's just one narrow area, but 
um, that's kind of wh- where I've been focusing on. And, and so far, so good, I would say. I know you're, this is just one final question. I know you, you're, inter- well, my final question for me, I should say. I know you're, sure. you have an interest in casinos and, and there's been talk about where there could be in a casino yeah. expansion in New York City. Have you been speaking to, I know Steve Cohen, owner of the Mets, is interested yeah. in all these people. I don't know what your involvement is. or I, I, I don't have any of this. So I ran the campaign uh, for Genting to build George World at Aqueduct. It was a mm-hmm. big RFP process. Yeah. We won. Great. Um, I do have gaming interests, both both financially and intellectually. But mine are a little different. And I actually, the thing that I, I raised a SPAC two years ago on this, this concept, which I still think is a good concept, which is there's 140 million millennials and Gen Zs in this country, right? And my guess is the same percentage of them like to gamble as every other generation. Mm-hmm. But every casino that you go to, whether it's the worst riverboat casino or the nicest casino on the Vegas Strip, is the same thing. It's red carpets and gold plating and Wheel of Fortune slot machines and it's designed for 85-year-olds. And my thought was like, why don't we try to build gaming that would be appealing to people under the age of 40, right? Do the things that they like. Esports betting, fantasy sports, have axe throwing as an activity, have soul cycle pop-ups. And so that's kind of what I've been interested in building somewhere, um, but uh, but haven't had these specific conversations. But, but I would love it if any of the people who are in the bid said, yeah, I'd love to devote some part of the space to that idea, I would love to try it out. So yeah, so you don't, you're not in in kind of, I know what Gentine maybe has eyes and you're not kind of involved in any. No, I'm, I'm not. Yeah. In fact, not only that, I'm not, um, I'm not even any longer the CEO of the like, consulting firm Touch strategies, Chris. Right, yeah, so, course, yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm not like, I know we don't have any clients in that, but even if we did, I probably wouldn't really know day to day what was going on with them. Um, so, and, you know, I, I, I have definitely plenty of investments on the venture side of gaming, but that's, it's all digital stuff. Bradley, we have time for one more question. So I'm going to ask okay. you two. Okay. Uh, <laughs> first off, I'm so old. I remember when Andrew Yang was a Democrat. In fact, he signed this book <laughs> deal to announce he was leaving the Democratic Party while he was yep. running in this Democratic primary uh, to become mayor. Eric Adams. I'm so old. I remember when he was a Republican. Um, and I, I'm just interested what you think Adams took from the uh, Yang campaign and that surge it had in terms of uh, messaging or or approach and possibly around Corona or anything else. And, and then one yeah. last question after that. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I think a few things. Because we started off significantly ahead of Adams, I think it created a sense of urgency for his campaign that was ultimately very helpful, right? So you could argue that if not for Yang coming in and getting all of this attention and having really high poll numbers, Adams rolls everything out in a much slower way and he doesn't get over the top. The Stringer campaign, in my view, kind of never really got going. Um, And in in part, because there just didn't ever seem to be a sense of urgency there. So I I think we probably had that impact for him. Um, and, And also, look, whether you like Andrew or you don't like him, he's an innovative thinker, right? He has lots of ideas. You could think Christina thinks they're terrible. I like a lot of them, but regardless, um, but you know, Adams is also an innovative thinker. And I think in some ways, us coming up with crazy ideas, some of which were good, some of which were not, actually kind of encouraged him to, to think more broadly too. Um, and so, you know, to the extent that that then reflects in good public policy coming out of City Hall now, to the extent that we had anything to do with that, that that's great. Last question, and I'm just going to ask that you do your best to speak quickly here. Okay. Uh, and and I, I, say th- I say this humorously because you, you, you do speak pretty quickly, but let's get up to like auctioneer horse race <laughs> speed. I'm just going to call yep, districts. It. 
and uh, and you're going to tell me what you think. Uh, and we're off. New York 11, Rose Maliotakis. Uh, Maliotakis. Am I just giving the uh, name? New I was trying to 12. keep it really brief. Yeah, okay. Beautiful, beautiful. New York yeah. 12, Nadler, Maloney, Patel. Uh, Nadler. Uh, again, these are who I think will win, not, not who I personally would support, but Nadler, yeah. New York 17, Maloney, no relation, Biagio. Right. That's a really tough one. Um, I, I think Sean Patrick probably pulls it out just because of the chair of the D triple C. He has so much access to money um, that I just, it's rare that that type of candidate doesn't win their own reelection. Um, but look, we have seen progressives upset kind of mainstream Democrats in the city before, most notably AOC. So, you know, I, I think Maloney, but I wouldn't be shocked if it's Biagio. Very last one, two parts, Long Island. And how bad could this be in November for Democrats in New York State? Yeah. So um, which Long Island seat do you mean, just generally speaking? All, all, all four, yeah. It just it yeah, seems I like think, it's going to be I more think, competitive. Yeah, I mean, I think they're all going to either end up as, as red seats or, or be really close. Um, this is going to be, I think, a really brutal year for the Democrats, um, which is not any original thinking. Um, but I think part of it is, more broadly, we live in a society where people feel very aggrieved, sometimes for valid reasons, sometimes for invalid reasons. The Internet and social media magnifies all of that exponentially. People run for office saying, I'm different. I'm going to fix everything for you. They can't because our system, at least at the federal level, is so dysfunctional. And the voters get annoyed. They throw them out. So I can see us in a world now where every two years it just flips because whoever is empowered is, is, is who, who people are happy with. Bradley, thank you for uh, taking the time. Joining yeah, us. sure. Uh, Thanks for having me. We will see you in person yeah. very soon at PNT Knitwear at 180. Orchard Street, open to the public as of Saturday. Yep, Absolutely. May 28th. Thank and for you our listeners, me, we got to remember, Harry, you know, my sister's a fast talker, too. She says she doesn't speak quickly. People just listen too slowly. <laughs> I, I, I totally, agree. By the I way, agree. I would say that's true in everything. My view is not that I move too fast, it's that the rest of the world moves too slow. <laughs> So I think you. your, your sister and I would, would probably get along pretty well. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Well, we thank you so much for joining us. And I really, as an academic, and I know, you know, Katie and Harry, as journalists, I can speak for them. We really, really appreciate you opening a bookstore um, sure. to continue Happy the production of knowledge and writing in the city of New York at 180 Orchard Street, Harry. There Siegel. we go. Parker, <laughs> Thanks, Bradley. Thanks, Bradley. F-A-Q. FAQ.NYC is headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, and we're a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, artists, and critics. Find us online at thebrick.house. A special thank you to our guest, Bradley Tusk, of P&T Knitwear Books and Podcasts, opening soon at 180 Orchard Street on the Lower East Side. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, mixed and edited this episode. Be cool, be well, be kind, and we'll see you next week.